This is the Neurodivergent Woman Podcast. I'm Monique Mitchelson, and I'm a clinical psychologist. And I'm Michelle Livock, and I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. This is a podcast where we center and showcase neurodivergent women from all walks of life. Covering autism to ADHD and everything in between, we aim to educate and inspire women who think differently. Just a warning for our listeners. This episode discusses disordered eating, weight loss, and diet culture, and Annie describes her experiences during periods of an active eating disorder. Some listeners may find this content triggering, particularly those currently experiencing an active eating disorder and those in recovery from an eating disorder. Please consume with caution and reach out to your local crisis line if you need to talk to a professional. Today, we have Annie Crow on the podcast. Annie is an autistic lawyer with ADHD, dyslexia, and Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Annie studied international human rights law at Oxford University. She was the youngest law society president in university history, and she graduated with honours and job offers from top-tier law firms and a federal government department. Annie received a late diagnosis of autism and ADHD at age 28. She's an advocate for neurodivergence, and she's particularly passionate about raising awareness and support for neurodivergent women and girls, including mental and chronic health, employment, and motherhood issues. So Annie, tell us, when did you first realise you were neurodivergent, and what was that like for you? Yeah, um, I I took that, I, I feel like I t- I'm taking this very literally, but um, I first realised I was neurodivergent when I was 27, and I came across information on ADHD in women because I'd been diagnosed with PTSD, and there was a link. <laughs> But um, now understanding neurodivergence, uh, the traits were obvious to my mum from as young as two or three. Um, The only problem was that a lot of those neurodivergent traits were the exact same as my mother, who is also diagnosed uh, ADHD and autistic just like me. Um, And she was diagnosed a year after me because we found out I was, which I'm sure is a very common story. I know that that's still really common for mums my age even to have kids being diagnosed and realizing that they're neurodivergent and and dads of course um anyway I hit all my milestones really early as a baby um and that's something I just want to mention because a lot of people talking about autism in babies and kids um talk about all the developmental delays and I think it's important to note that there's a lot of us out there that did not have those delays and are still very autistic (laughs) But uh, I, I walked independently at nine months old, same as my brothers and dad. I spoke very well, very early. I could sing the Australian National Anthem by three uh, all on my own, the full thing. <laughs> but I was delayed in reading in school. And my parents put it down to I actually started school early because at daycare they said I was so bored <laughs> that my mum put me in early, even though I was also biting other kids which I feel like should have been probably taken more seriously. I was absolutely intellectually ready for school, but socially, no way. Yeah, I think it's a really good point that you made around realising that 
not all individuals on the spectrum in those early years actually experience delays in their development. And sometimes it's actually quite the opposite. You know, sometimes we have quite advanced early development. And I think as exactly as you said, Annie, it's so important for people to be aware of that because I think it harks back to that kind of medicalized model where, um, oh, you can't have this diagnosis unless there's something wrong with you, right? There's something wrong. And the other thing that you mentioned there, which I think is really helpful helpful for parents to know is this idea of when are kids ready to go into prep or into formal schooling? And there's this big misconception that, and, you know, through no fault of kindy teachers or parents or anything like that, it makes total sense why people would think this, but there's a big misconception that if your child is bright, then they're ready for school. And that's actually not really the case. The biggest predictor of school success in the early years is social and emotional development. And exactly as you say, Annie, if you're biting kids, that's probably a little bit of a clue that you're not feeling super comfortable in your environment. Um, so, you know, I think um, I love that you kind of mentioned some of that, Annie, and talked about that kind of difference between being potentially intellectually ready for something, um, but not socially and emotionally ready. Yeah, 100%. I think that's such an um, important distinction to make. And um, equally, like, I have very black and white thinking, as we all know, is very common in autism especially. And it's easy for me to think that I either have something or I don't. And that's been interesting in the diagnostic process and understanding my neurodivergence. And it's like a spectrum, right? Some of us have really severe sensory needs and some don't. Yes, I had, I was very good verbally, but terrible at reading. And now I understand that's because I'm dyslexic, which I didn't find out until after I found out I was autistic and ADHD. I think the ramifications of that are important to note because I did pretty well in school with not much effort, not because I didn't try or want to try. I tried so hard and couldn't try, which made me, it had a lot of problems. <laughs> um, but uh, the the dyslexia it it had like a like there was like almost a cognitive dissonance in my identity right because on one hand i can get pretty decent grades with no effort which kind of made me have pretty bad imposter syndrome because i was like any day now they're going to realize i'm a fraud and then equally uh i was a slow reader which gave me a lot of anxiety in exams i was terrified to speak out loud in class i've only recently learned to be able to read out loud with the very slow patient help of my husband. But uh, those things, I was like, how can I be so smart and so stupid? Which obviously we know that's not, I don't mean to be offensive by using the word stupid, but that's kind of just, I, I just was like, which one am I? And in my head, my black and white brain, I was like, well, I must be stupid because I've got more evidence of that. And that, you know, is I think the very first seed that is planted in a lot of our neurodivergent heads of getting low self-esteem and low self-worth, which does lead to complex mental health and even more so if you don't have a diagnosis. That's a really good point, Annie, around that kind of black and white thinking around identity. And you're so right, and I see it all the time in uh, child clients and hear it from adult clients who are late diagnosed, that it's this kind of, and I love how you put it, this almost identity dissonance, that's which one am I? Am I the smart kid 
or the dumb kid? Am I good at this or am I terrible at it? What's the answer? And it's often what I actually see in that transition to high school for a lot of our bright neurodivergent girls who found primary school quite easy and didn't really have to do a lot, exactly as you were saying, put in a lot of effort. They kind of really enjoyed it. For a lot of girls, it's actually their special interest. And then there's this transition to high school where the whole sense of identity, which has been I'm smart, I'm good at school, gets almost taken away. And, you know, I know for a lot of our neurodivergent girls, that's just such a really difficult time. Yeah, 100%. And I think I'm almost lucky in a way uh, in that comparison, just because obviously having ADHD and autism means that they kind of interact and some parts cover the other or repel the other. Like I, I really crave routine and certainty, but I equally can't actually do it because I have such poor executive functioning and attention and all those things. But um, I I didn't like primary school more or less than high school. Actually, I almost didn't like it more than high school because uh, primary school, there's a lot more very short, quick uh, assignments, like build a model of space and build a volcano. And I was like, I'd always forget to tell my mother and I'd forget to do it. And so it would be a constant last minute rush the night before when I was leaving school and they'd be like, don't forget your this tomorrow. And I'm like, ah, crap. So uh, when I went to high school, high school, I found that it had far less but bigger assignments and that brought its own struggle. But I didn't have to keep like running to mum and feeling like I couldn't even manage to remember that simple thing. So thanks for talking us through that kind of process. It sounds like um, you officially, quote unquote, realised that you were neurodivergent in your late 20s, but it's something that actually you've always sensed and certainly your mother's always sensed. And as Monique and I have previously talked about, the impact of that heritability of neurodivergence and the intergenerational effect of neurodivergence often means that we have undiagnosed or unaware parents or grandparents um, who are also neurodivergent themselves looking at their neurodivergent kids saying, yeah, this is normal. (laughs) And being like, yeah, I do that, right? Um, And it's really wonderful that your mother was able to kind of find that process just as validating and just as um, illuminating for herself by witnessing and being part of your process going through that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's been really interesting um, to see her also go through it. And she had a very similar uh, roller coaster ride the first few months post diagnosis to me of, you know, such relief and happiness uh, and understanding to like rage and anger about not knowing earlier and not getting the support that I deserved and having to have struggled so much to the point where my mental and physical health is just a mess because of it. So having her go through that after me was, it was validating (laughs) Um, and we could share in that. But the the difference I think is, um, is she has a lot more years than me living undiagnosed and she was bullied just as much, if not more than I was at school. And she, like, I think it's so hard the older you get to unpack all of that trauma, big T's and little T's. And so I almost like just want to wrap her up in a bundle and say, just leave it alone. I'm sorry I brought it up. 
<laughs> but uh, no, she's super supportive and has her life has improved so much. My dad said to me recently, he thanked me for leading to finding out this stuff, especially about my mother, because he there was so much of her that he didn't understand. He's a he's a very militant. He's military, so he's very rigid and uh, disciplined and doesn't really understand why people can't handle anything. <laughs> um, so my mum, being a highly sensitive person, he just thought it was a choice and it's not a choice. When you have sensory issues, it's not a choice. It's a really visceral, physical discomfort. And the sad part is, and I, I heard your episode mentioning introception the other day, is a lot of the time we can't even interpret those things to be able to advocate for them. So a lot of the time we'll just make assumptions based on we know in life, like, oh, like I get curled easily so I can't sit in a doorway with a breeze, not I have a sensory issue with temperatures and it makes me really anxious and frustrated so I avoid these things, you know. And so I, I just feel for my mom because she had this back and forth with my dad my whole life but since finding out her diagnosis and both of them learning about neurodiversity, he's learnt to understand that and let so much more go. And I'm making him sound horrible. He's delightful. But my mother, like me, but she's a little bit more sensory than me in certain sensitivities, she would be literally like at a restaurant and she'd move tables three times and any little thing from someone kicking her chair to being too close to loud people to temperature change like would really affect her. So I would imagine anyone living with that would get frustrated from time to time. But now my dad never gets frustrated. And he said, thank you so much because I now understand why she's like that. And actually me just supporting her in it and helping her cope with it has made our lives so much better because now rather than him being impatient and rushing to sit down, he can stand with her and go, where would you like to sit? And my mum poor my mum, is like, uh, oh, just there. Like she she doesn't want to stress anyone. And he'd be like, no, okay, like let's just take a minute and think about it and help her like problem solve some of the issues in wherever they were around temperature, noise and everything. So nowadays they rarely have to move because both of them are such a team and sorting it out. It's great. That is such an incredible explanation of the benefit and the gift of diagnosis and self-understanding. And when I hear stories like that, it makes me equal parts joyful and enraged because when people say things like, oh, everyone's getting a diagnosis nowadays or everyone can't be autistic. I mean, the answer is, well, no, everyone isn't. Um, but when we hear kind of stories like that from older people, the older generation, it really hits home something that we already know intuitively is that people have always felt this way. There just wasn't space for them to feel that way. And exactly as you explained, Annie, having people understand the why behind why someone is behaving in a certain way, why something's hard for someone, why something is super easy for someone. It takes a lot of the emotion and the interpersonal conflict out of those situations because, again, instead of feeling like this is someone who is intentionally choosing to be difficult, it's how do we as a parent team, as a romantic partnership, as a friendship, as, you know, colleagues or whatever, 
work together to make sure everyone can feel comfortable and safe. So I really love that explanation, Annie, and I'm so happy that your mom has been able to have such a good experience going through that process. Yeah, absolutely. Same. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds incredible. Like what an incredible journey for your family and the multiple generations in your family. And I think the intergenerational process of people getting diagnosed, it actually can affect a family in such a positive way and really help children to understand their parents, parents to understand their kids, um, help people who are married to understand each other on such a deeper level, you know, even if they've been together for 30 or 40 years. It's just such an incredible gift to give a family and being able to relate to each other on that level And it just frees up a lot of uh, compassion for each other and understanding of each other that's really invaluable. I think so as well. And it's funny because even if we move away from heritability for a second uh, and just look at relationships. So my husband was diagnosed with ADHD inattentive after I was, but we met uh, at the start of second year uni. One of the things, and even pre-diagnosis, we knew this, is one of the things we really loved about each other was that we fundamentally understood each other. And like, we have very different neurodivergence. It's funny that we didn't even know about our neurodivergence. And yet it's one of the main things that bonds us as a couple and like always has. And we've just grown even closer since diagnosis. So Annie, I understand that you were diagnosed with disordered eating conditions in adulthood. Looking back, can you tell us a little bit about your experiences in childhood and adolescence with disordered eating and what actually brought you to that point of diagnosis? Yeah, absolutely. I I can't really separate the eating disorder and the autism easily because they are just so co-occur, like they, they interlink so much. I was a very fussy eater as a child and it very repetitive eater. So I would want the same meal every night for dinner for two weeks and then I wouldn't touch it for like two months. And thankfully my mom was very understanding about it because I think if she'd forced me to change, it would have been another trauma to add to my lovely basket. Um, So I really appreciate that she just let me do it because I think it was one of my main ways to self-regulate. But uh, so the eating issues were there from the start and And I even had like quite sensory seeking behavior around eating. Like I love crunchy stuff. I love very salty, very sweet. Olives have always been my favorite food. Um, I love hot and cold. I don't really like not like normal temperature food food, like processed foods fine, but actual food are very avoidant of fruit and veg just because they are so unreliable. (laughs) I love fruit and veg when it's cooked perfectly, perfectly ripe. But any time outside of that stresses me out. And always has. And I couldn't really understand why as a kid. But the eating, the traditional eating disorder side of it really started like most girls do, sort of late primary school, where I I actually had to stop ice skating. I was a competitive ice skater, figure skater, and um, doing like 10 to 15 hours on the ice a week. And it was absolutely my special interest and still is, but I can't skate anymore. <laughs> That's okay. Um, and I had to stop because I had... Uh, knee problems and that like I'd had some issues before that because ice skating is also very body image focused and I was never very skinny compared to the other girls but it wasn't that big a deal because I was still a good skater so I didn't really care that much but it was really when the skating stopped the weight piled on 
with a mixture of just already being dysregulated with eating and like hunger and fullness cues. And equally, I think I was truly, that was my first time in my life. I was truly depressed and eating is a great coping mechanism. It's one of the first things that we learn as people, as you guys know. So um, that kind of all compounded right at a time where the social setting in school got more complex. So we started noticing boys and boys started noticing girls. And I was always, I don't want to say extrovert, but I was, I, I, I loved friends and people. I just had some issues in that area. <laughs> um, but it was, didn't really become a problem until around this time. And like, it really makes me sad to talk about because looking back, I'm absolutely sure that the issue of what was going on socially for me was far more the unknown neurodivergence than the weight. But because I started to know more of an issue with social interactions, I did this thing. And I like to say A plus B equals C. And A is that popular people are pretty and skinny, plus B, which is fat people are bullied and not liked by the boys. So C equals I just need to lose weight and I'll be popular and pretty and liked by boys. <laughs> um, I know that sounds so basic, but I mean, I was like eight or nine years old. I don't think that sounds basic at all. I think that's very um, typical logic, <laughs> you know, even for neurotypical girls. And as you're kind of describing everything that was going on for you in that moment or that period of your life, it sounds like there were so many things happening both within you and to you. And it's really interesting, and I'm sure we're going to unpack this or talk about this in a lot more depth later on, but it's really just part of that super fat phobic diet culture where as soon as someone exists in a bigger body, that is all anyone, including ourselves, can see as the issue. The issue, all the problems in my life, everything I'm experiencing must not be because my brain is fundamentally different to everyone else's, must not be because I am experiencing depression. It must be because I live in a bigger body. And, you know, I don't think, you know, obviously that's flawed logic, but I think it's very understandable flawed logic. Yeah, I totally agree. And I also think that the biggest practical application of that for me was that I was overtly bullied for my weight, but I was very subvertly bullied for my neurodivergence. So my weight, I was, you know, name called and really nasty comments from people um, talking behind my back that got back to me. But for my neurodivergence, it was more the cool girls just sort of stopped talking to me. Like it was really subtle, you know, nasty girl type behavior where it becomes just like ice queen, but I didn't really understand what was happening. I just felt really rejected. So it just made sense that it was the weight. Not at all. Part of that is, as we were just talking about, even yourself was kind of projecting or putting on all these issues onto your physicality, your body, your weight. When someone exists in a bigger body who is also neurodivergent, it's almost like an out for people to bully you about, if that makes sense. It's kind of like, well, I can't quite put my finger on what's odd about you or what, what I kind of don't quite get about you, but I can understand the fact that you are living in a bigger body. So bingo, there it is. That's what I'll tease you about. Yeah, 100%. I think it's just that tangible thing that they, that any bullies or like insecure people can latch onto 
So that was kind of the beginning of the bullying. And my parents could see I was getting more distressed, more than I already was, because I was a mess in the evenings all through schooling. I'd completely mask all day. The only negative thing on any reports was that I was a little bit poor with attention and sometimes was too chatty. <laughs> cool. But um, I'd come home and my dad would be like, how was your day? And I'd break down in tears. It's like, whoa, I just asked how your day was. Just meltdown. Like, I didn't know what was going on. They didn't know what was going on. We just thought I was sensitive. But um, my parents could see how distressed the weight was making me. Uh, and I expressed that to them. And they did what every parent in the 90s would have done and put me on a diet. <laughs> and I'd already witnessed them doing a few diets. I think they'd just done Atkins. And my mum had as a lifetime, well, I think she's a lifetime Weight Watchers member. <laughs> so she did that when I was younger too. And yeah, so we did this thing called Shore Slim where they take your bloods and then tell you what you can and can't eat. And my bloods basically said you can't eat carbs, uh, which is pretty funny because I have PCOS. So, <laughs> so unhealthy. <laughs> a no carb diet for anyone, but particularly for someone in their early adolescence, like, holy crap, yeah. <laughs> that is yeah. so irresponsible and completely unethical and incredibly unhealthy. Anyway, that, exactly. That's just my little soapbox. Uh, continue. No, uh, <laughs> just live on that sto- soapbox. Amen. Uh, yeah, no, uh, it was horrible. And the, the, the thing about it that I think is important to mention with my neurodivergence is that because I already had a very limited palate, it just limited it far further. So I went from being a fussy, picky eater to like an ex- like extremely fussy, picky eater. So I remember um, this was just as I was starting high school and I lived on honey, soy, chicken and broccoli every single day for lunch for like three months because I didn't like any of the other vegetable options or the flavor options. Like, why wouldn't anyone think there was something wrong there? (laughs) But again, my mom was fussy and she was like, whatever, it's going to get you happy and losing weight, which is clearly what you want, which is true. That's what I expressed. They didn't know better back then. And yeah, it just kind of kept going downhill because, you know, we all know now that diets don't work. And when I say that, for all the haters that are like, oh, but my friend lost weight and kept it off. So like the research is now backing it up that 95% of diets fail um, and that most people put on more than they lost within two years. And I can 100% attest to that as my own lived experience and pretty much everyone in my life that's been chronic dieters. And actually a more accurate way to tell what someone's health is like that's not BMI, avoid that, is how much they've weight cycled, which usually equals how much they've dieted in their life. Uh, So I'm a big proponent of health at every size and intuitive eating and such. You're absolutely correct. Not only do we have the research that this massive proportion of people, most people who diet end up putting the weight back on and even more so, we also know why the mechanism has been well-researched and well-understood, and it's because it actually raises your body's baseline of where your body thinks its comfortable weight is at. And yep, that can be point, really, right? exactly, yep. yep, exactly. And that can be a really challenging pill for people to swallow who have been on this chronic yo-yo dieting, which is actually your body now feels like it's most comfortable at a much higher weight than it would have felt like it was comfortable at 
had you not gone through all these dieting cycles. And part of that journey, and I'm sure, Annie, we're going to chat about this today, but part of that journey is really about getting to a point where you can divorce your sense of self-worth from your size. Very easily said, incredibly difficult to do. And I'm sure we'll we'll get there today in this episode. Yeah, 100%. And I think that's so hard because unfortunately, like it's so common in eating disorders to have higher weights, especially in recovery. And not only do you have to recover from the disordered eating behaviors, but you also have to accept the thing that you were fighting against and avoiding is the thing you actually now have to accept. So all that damage literally did nothing except make you worse off than you started. It's yeah, it's it's like double-edged sword, not fun. Um, but yeah, the dieting just kept continuing because, you know, they don't work. So I'd lose a bit of weight and I'd gain a bit of weight and I'd lose a bit of weight and I'd gain a little weight. And um I I actually I went I went to an all-girls school when I started high school and I hated it. So when my parents found out they were leaving at the end of that year for a, a different posting, I was like, I'm going to boarding school that's co-ed. See ya. <laughs> I'd been reading Mary Kate and Ashley books at the time and they were all about boarding school. And I was like, I want that life. <laughs> so I ended up going to boarding school, um, a co-ed boarding school for two and a half years. And then for my last two years, stayed there, but became a day student when my parents were posted up, that, which was great because my was finally some continuity in my schooling. But it meant that like, I obviously had less support from my parents because I was not under their care most of the time. And that that's a really critical time for people. And, and it had pros and cons because, I mean, the, there was a lot of things about boarding school I loved. I loved that they helped with my executive function so much because I just had to put my dirty clothes in a chute every Sunday and every Monday after school, I'd pick them up perfectly folded and sorted. Uh, and then the food aspect, I to this day, I hate it when someone asks what I want for dinner or any, what I want anytime. <laughs> uh, it's so triggering for me. Uh, and, and half of that is the eating disorder side of it about food selectivity and, and morality. But some of it's also just the decision fatigue and executive function of having to make a choice where I have to check in with my body that lies to me constantly and decide what it wants and then know if that's even available like it's just really complicated so i yeah i liked that about boarding school i didn't like the food at boarding school but i could kind of pick what i wanted but it, it was actually also really difficult because it meant that all my meals were very social because you're in a big dining hall with all the boarders so and that's always been really hard for me because i'm so anxious and distracted by the social aspect of eating and then if you add to that very stressed that people will notice my weird eating. It was there's just like a lot of layers to why I didn't like that. But the sad thing, and this I think reflects on the broader medical community and how society treats eating disorders, is there was a couple of girls at boarding school with anorexia, uh, and they made a huge song and dance about it. The head cook, her name was actually Mrs. Cook. It was hilarious. She's this big boss of a woman, like lovely lady, but she would stand at the bin that you would put your leftovers in before you gave it, gave your stuff to the dishwasher people. And she made a big point that she would be watching what we all ate and she would see if anyone wasn't eating. Now, I wasn't eating because I didn't like most of their food. Not because but a little bit was the the weight issue, but 
most of it was the sensory aspect. And I didn't really understand that at the time, but I just knew I was a fussy eater. And so I would strategically like cut my food up and wrap it in tissues and stuff. But I'm pretty sure it was obvious that I hadn't eaten. And, and I did eat. It was just that I'd leave at least half my plate um, because I only like certain aspects. Like my husband thinks I'm so weird because I adore the powdered mashed potato because it's so consistent compared to real potatoes. If they're not done right, really frustrating. Anyway, I uh, love it. But yeah, so I, I'm sure she saw that I wasn't eating, but no one ever cared because I was in a large body. So the only people that ever got any help or attention were the ones that were skinny enough to be deemed worthy and bad enough, even though we know weight doesn't matter in that aspect. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, it really speaks to, again, a lot of the way that society, parents, teachers, adults, uh, everyone tried to manage these types of issues previously and still now to a degree, but we are getting better very slowly. It was coming from a good place. Like I have no doubt that that lady thought that she was doing a good thing and I have no doubt that she thought, well, if someone's in a bigger body, then that's okay. They don't need to eat all of their dinner, right? They, they need less nutrients for some reason than someone who's in a smaller body. Um, but even that idea of standing and watching and saying, I am watching what you are eating, it's turning something that is so integral to the human experience, food, nourishing ourselves, enjoying such a simple pleasure of putting something tasty into our mouth and eating it into a war into a battle, into something that we've got to hide from someone or be good at or be bad at. I think the entire way that we conceptualize our relationship with food as a society, we've got so much work to do in changing that. And it's funny you mentioned that because, I mean, obviously I'm talking from my perspective, but I, one of the girls I was friends with uh, who was one of the anorexic girls who never openly admitted that. I feel like she had a very similar amount of shame and hiding of her behaviors that I did. That wasn't, I've I've had periods of atypical anorexia, but that wasn't it at the time. And she did like compulsive, extreme exercising and a few different things. And she would be constantly either trying to hide it or justify it to everyone. And I feel like I was doing the same thing about my inactivity and my any eating because I was fat and I couldn't possibly not move. Otherwise, it's my own fault. So it's funny because we're totally opposite, opposite ends of the field, but having just as much stigma and discrimination, it, yeah, it's just really sad. And it definitely, we've got so, so far to go. Um, it's terrible what they did. And of course, they didn't know better, but we do now and we should make sure that that actually is applied. And I think the next phase for me in in the development of my body image issues was when I, I think I was in like maybe, maybe grade 10, this is Queensland. So I was, so I would have been 14, 14 and I'd lost a bit of weight and I was starting to feel more confident that I was closer to the norm. And it was the first time I was like ready to openly admit I had a crush on someone thinking like, well, at least I'm not like really fat now and hopefully don't get a terrible reaction. And I was wrong. (laughs) 
And the guy that I liked, him and his mates, drew a picture of a whale chasing a little man and put my name on it and gave it to me. And I still have it, which is pretty messed up. But <laughs> it's, it's kind of a reminder to me of, of what I've been through and how it's helpful in recovery for me because before I kept it and I was shameful of it and now I keep it as like a stick it to the man, these guys are the the horrible people and it's not my fault. It's also not their fault. They grow up in diet culture and weight stigma. So I don't blame them either, but you know, they could definitely have not been jerks. Yeah. So I, that's for sure. You're, you're allowed to feel angry at people for doing things that have done, you know, that that are unkind to you in the past. And I think, you know, often as women in particular, regardless of neurodiversity status or not, we can have a tendency to think that a reason is means that something's okay. And we can accept that there was absolutely a reason why people behaved in the way that they did. And also it wasn't okay. And also you're allowed to be angry. You sound like my psychologist who's helping me step away from black and white thinking. (laughs) I love it so much. Thank you. That was very helpful. (laughs) Yeah. Funny that. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's so true. And uh, the sad thing is that that then went on to affect my relationships. Um, And the, my first boyfriend, my only other partner, because I got married to the next one. um, My first boyfriend, I went out with him for a year and that was such a bad relationship. And I had no idea and, and this plays into the eating stuff because when I broke up with him, I got really, really into exercise. And so I lost a lot of weight and I was probably the fittest I've ever been in my life at that point in first year uni. And so when I met my husband, I was very thin. As you do when you get into a new relationship, we both got comfortable and my exercise obsession was replaced with my new partner obsession <laughs> and the weight just blew back on just like it kind of did when I stopped skating as a kid. So that was like a whole nother reliving of that trauma and depression, except I didn't get as depressed this time because I had other interests and my partner was really good. But yeah, my weight really fluctuated in uni, very dependent on how stressed I was. The more I'd put on weight was the more stressed I would get. And then I, as a reaction to gaining that weight and stress, I'd do some form of eating disordered behavior to get rid of it again. And it was just like a vicious cycle. And at one point uh, I, so we got engaged when I was in, I think it was fourth year and we had like an 18 month engagement. And when I was in fifth year doing my honors thesis, I was starting to get stressed because I wanted to lose more weight for the wedding, but I also don't want to like go on a crazy diet. So I went to my doctor and complained about struggling to lose weight. And she gave me a drug that's an appetite suppressant. And I spent the next month eating absolutely nothing but a couple Maltesers a day. And I lost almost like, I think it was like 10 kilos. And I went back. I I know. What a great diet. No, it was horrible because I already had really poor interception and I really never felt hungry until I was starving. So it was easy for for me to skip eating, regardless of whether it was because of wanting to be skinny or not. Like I just always forgot to eat and that would generally end up being some kind of a binge because, uh, hello, you starve yourself, you're hungry. It's human nature, it's biology, but then add to that the guilt and then you starve yourself because you binge. It's like, yeah, it's a vicious cycle. But yeah, I went to, I went back to the doctor with my weight loss and I, I was so thrilled and my doctor was happy for me. She didn't ask 
she didn't think that was too much because I was in a very, I went from being obese to overweight. BMI is messed up. So that was a great thing as doctors would think. And yeah, didn't question how I'd done it, what I was thinking, feeling, no, nothing. And I like, I literally didn't walk into a psychologist's office till I was 23. And the reason that happened is because two years into working full-time as a grad, I had the biggest burnout. At the time, I thought it was actually just like my boss was a bit of a pain in the ass and I kind of blamed him for it. But looking back and understanding autism, burnout and everything, I'm like, oh yeah, that was real bad burnout. And that was the point where my doctor said, "Uh, you've got anxiety and depression, you should see a psychologist. So I've been in the doctors in and out a lot in my life. And that was the first time anyone suggested to see anyone. I went on stress leave got in a car accident, which led to years of dealing with doctors and surgeries and chronic pain. And then it wasn't until I think it was like four or five years in where the pain doctor, my third pain doctor said to me, so we've done everything we can. Uh, You should see a psychiatrist, which is what pain doctors do. They intervene, do surgeries, do do different treatments. And then when they can't fix you, they're like, there's something broke in your brain. Uh, So I got sent to a psychiatrist for the first time after being in like normal psychology consistently for four years. And I was diagnosed with PTSD from the car accident. And just reading about PTSD led me to read about ADHD. And so I went to my doctor and I was like, so ready to go being like, if she didn't believe me, I'm going to convince you. But she totally believed me. And luckily... She sent me to a psychiatrist who specializes in neurodivergence. And when I went in for my assessment with him, I was so, so sure of myself. And at the end of it, he said, so what do you think you have? And I said, well, you know, I've already got the anxiety, depression diagnosis, and I know I have PTSD, and I'm really confident that I have ADHD. And he was like, yeah, anything else? I was like, uh, is that a trick question? <laughs> I don't know. And he told me I was autistic. And I was like, what? <laughs> What's that? <laughs> it's so embarrassing that I didn't know that. But the world really doesn't know still. Uh, I didn't even have the whole Rain Man thing. Down. Like, I didn't know anything about autism at all. So I just was like, I don't, I wasn't even offended that he said it. I was just like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> and it blows my mind because I did a lot of reading on ADHD and there's such a comorbidity, but I don't know whether it was the reading didn't link it because of the the whole stigma stuff, or maybe I just wasn't paying attention and thought I couldn't be that just because of the very little knowledge I had. I I tend to find that a lot of the information on ADHD, and it's getting better now, but a lot of the things that are attributed to as signs of ADHD are actually autism. And in kind of pop culture and, and, you know, the lay population, yeah, a lot of things that are, no, 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 that that's autism. If you're doing that, you're probably autistic. Um, it's kind of like, oh, 10 signs of ADHD. So I think it's almost like a gateway drug to neurodivergence where people feel more, I don't know, more knowledgeable or more safe, I guess, in that. And then it's often, as you've explained, Annie, it's often, you know, through that pathway where the idea of autism gets brought up and some of the uh, things that distinguish the two can kind of come to the fore a little bit. Yeah. And a lot of uh, women and girls will get diagnosed diagnosed with ADHD first and then later get diagnosed with autism. Yeah. And I say that, I mean, that's why I say I was lucky, right? Because I feel like I would have been one of those women if I didn't happen to go to one of the most specialized in especially adult and female presentations 
um, of autism, that would have absolutely, I would have been one of those people. So I feel really lucky that I found out at that time. And obviously I did what every good autistic does. And I went down a rabbit hole of research and was like, oh my God, they know me. (laughs) Uh, It was so liberating, but also horrifying that I hadn't heard of it before. And it was literally who I was. And then that rabbit hole of research led me to see the statistics around eating disorders and uh, autism. And I'd never, ever looked into eating disorders because I was fat and doctors constantly told me that and constantly put me on the new diet of the day. I've had GPs give me the, like, tell me to do keto, the intermittent fasting, like without ever checking what my health behaviors were like. I mean, you literally starved yourself, ate nothing but Maltesers and you got the feedback. Great. Great job. From your doctor. Yeah. And society, I might add, like all my friends and everyone I went into contact was like, you look great. What are you doing? Like, yeah, not eating. Yeah, that definitely doesn't sound healthy um, in terms of the feedback and and stuff you're getting from the medical professionals. Yeah, absolutely. And I found out quickly, uh, I just started reading about eating disorders just purely because of the overlap. And, you know, uh, it was my special interest of the day. Uh, thanks ADHD (laughs) makes me switch them up sometimes but um, yeah I really quickly was like oh my god I've had an eating disorder for like 20 years (laughs) and went back to the psychiatrist and he was like yep (laughs) yep you definitely do so I got OSFED diagnosed with OSFED which is like the catch-all if you don't fit any of the neat ones Um, and I had kind of an overlap of atypical anorexia and binge eating and I would even say ARFID to be honest but I I think the only thing that would make me eligible for ARFID um, would be the fact that disordered, like diet culture made me more restrictive. Annie, just just quickly, could you just explain to our listeners what ARFID is? Yes, absolutely. Um, it's avoidant and restrictive feeding and eating disorder. And ARFID and anorexia are the two most common co-occurring eating disorders with specifically autism. Uh, ADHD is known to be more like a binge eating type. Um, pull in just because of the traits and the overlaps and everything. Uh, but yeah, Arford, um, it's it's very, it makes so much sense to me that a lot of people on the spectrum would have Arford or at least be a lot like the criteria, for, like meet a lot of the criteria if not being diagnosed for it, just because our restrictive and repetitive behaviours and sensory issues just feed into that diagnosis, Right. But for me, it was like I started with those issues, but then diet culture like hijacked them and made them worse. Yeah, I think too, it's really hard for people to get specific help. There is that overlap between neurodiversity, neurodivergence and having an eating disorder because like I remember despite, you know, doing six years of university and two years of like a further registrar program, we didn't really learn about the link between um, neurodiversity and specific eating disorders like with autism and anorexia. I didn't actually learn that until um, I joined the practice that I currently work at that is uh, neurodiversity-based and did like a training with Tony Atwood and Michelle Garnett where they first mentioned it and then our supervisor mentioned it and I was quite shocked because it's quite a high number. I think it's nearly 30% of people that present to 30 to 35 now they're saying closer to 35 yeah 
Yeah, so uh, yeah, 30 to 35% of people um, presenting um, with eating disorders are autistic. Um, so a massive overlap and like hopefully a lot of the eating disorder services um, and specialists, specialist treatments know about this overlap and know how to work specifically with clients that have both. It's just ridiculous how comorbid they are. And it makes total sense considering a lot of the risk factors for eating disorders are naturally neurodivergent traits. And actually what what worries me is that we are starting to research this stuff, thank God, but in the research and discussions around it, people need to be talking about all the co-occurrences. And like, if you're going to talk about autism and anorexia and ARFID, you need to mention the high rates of co-occurrence of autism and ADHD and therefore the high likelihood of having binge eating and other things. Let's stop categorizing and pigeonholing things and treat these things as like person-centered and like focus specifically on your experience with them. Yeah. So it's not really a criticism on the research. It's just, I just want, I guess my message is that I really just want the it to all come together and be acknowledged because, I mean, that's what led me down the rabbit holes of all my different diagnoses is that things are in silos. I have a bit of a pet peeve of um, specialization because I know how critical it is because you can't possibly know everything, but equally at least frontline care like GPs and general psychologists need to have a better understanding of complex mental health because if that happened, we'd all get flagged much earlier and the, f- the fact is, I think the thing that's feeding that is the silos, right? And the fact that we now know more means like, let's start seeing that be put into action and getting the education on this stuff better. It's like, uh, for example, dietitians, right? I've had a lot of, I've seen a lot of dietitians over my time. Uh, and uh, one of them said to me, they get very angry at GPs for giving dietary advice, which I do too, because <laughs> it's terrible <laughs> generally. Um, but one of them said to me that doctors only do like a one-hour lecture on nutrition, which makes sense because they have so much to learn. But, oh, my God, how can you feel confident ever giving nutritional advice with an hour lecture and maybe some lived experience steeped in diet culture and weight stigma if you're even aware of that? Yeah, and I think it really speaks to, I guess, the complex issue of specialization and good uh, general practice and general care. I think that potentially a solution to that or one option for that is because exactly as you say, Annie, you know, it's not possible for everyone to know everything. What I see as a big issue is when people don't acknowledge that it's not possible for them to know everything. You know, it is so fine. It's so fine to have a specialty. It's so fine to have an area that you know a lot about. And the really important thing is to say, I actually don't know too much about X, Y, Z. I'm going to refer you to this other person who does know a lot about that. So I think potentially that kind of walking that middle ground is everyone who's on frontline mental health, medical care knows at least the general co-diagnoses or the things that are likely to co-occur or things that are statistically related to each other so that, you know, you kind of got this map of what is likely, you know, what's possible, what should I be looking for here? And then also that second step is having a really good network of practitioners of all different disciplines and modalities that you can refer people to if they need ongoing specialist care. 
and also being curious and and going, you know, okay, maybe I should find out more about this and do some professional development in this area or get supervision, you know, from someone that is a specialist in that area. I have ehlers danlos syndrome and I've seen a lot of rheumatologists since my accident uh, with pain issues. And the, th- the three that I saw before I finally found one that diagnosed me, the, the first rheumatologist, I didn't even know about ehlers danlos so I didn't ever bring it up. Can you just explain what ehlers danlos syndrome is? Yeah, absolutely. I should have started with that. Um, It's so not well known and there's actually like 14 types. Um, So uh, basically it's like a, in a nutshell of my unmedical description of it, it's like a issue with joints and skin um, tissue connectivity. Um, And that can uh, come across in so many different ways, which is why there's 14 types. And uh, 13 of those types, and I'm pretty sure it's 14, it might be 15, uh, they're constantly learning more um, and I'm a little out of date on the research. But the, four, the 13 types, uh, you can test genetically, so it's a blood test. But the main type that's most popular, the hypermobile type, which I have, uh, there's no che- there's no um, blood test, which sucks. So we are therefore at the discretion of diagnostic criteria and professionals. So the two rheumatologists I saw after the first one was after I was diagnosed with autism when I started to think, oh my God, I might have HEDS. And I'll, I'll explain what I have in a minute because this is rel- this is like kind of leads there. But uh, both of them outright flat told me there's no way I could have it. One, it was be- one said it was because my skin wasn't stretchy enough. And the other one said it was because I wasn't hypermobile enough because I couldn't do one of the nine Baton score things. You only need like, I think it's six in childhood to be hypermobile and like maybe five in adulthood. I have seven. Anyway, <laughs> um, and at the time I didn't know it well enough to like question them. That way. Uh, The second one I tried to question more, but it didn't get me anywhere. And Elos Downless was not their area. They were rheumatologists, but it wasn't their thing. And that's when my fourth rheumatologist who I found out the name through my psychiatrist, who clearly has a lot of patients that have both uh, autism and illustanus. Um, oh, it was an easy diagnosis for her. So uh, just to give people a better idea, I've, I've got a bit of a list um, of what how it affects me specifically. And I, I think this is helpful to put out there because it's just so hard to, to know these things. Um, and this is obviously like there's so many different ways you can be affected. So don't take this as like textbook. But so I, I meet the hypermobility threshold. So just for our listeners who aren't sure what hypermobility is, basically with Ella's Danlov's um, hypermobile type, the uh, collagen, the way your collagen is formed in your body is affected. So people's joints are hypermobile, which means that they extend further than they're meant to extend. So people are Uh, I guess can be kind of bendy or flexible, their joints move in ways that they're not really supposed to and people can get like a lot of uh, joint issues or dislocations um, because basically their muscles are holding things together rather than their joints. Yeah, so I had a really good history of this but never knew about it, um, similar to my neurodivergence. Um, 
And for me, it was not only the hypermobility, which was really helpful for me. That's why I was really good at skating and gymnastics. I was just so naturally flexible, like it was not an effort for me at all. But I also had issues with dislocations and unstable joints. So I had so many finger dislocations in netball over the years. I was diagnosed with ostrich ladders and that's when I had to stop ice skating. And that basically means a growth issue. So like it's usually around puberty and it's when you're doing too much running or jumping on your knee and it's where your patella starts to like lift off from the knee. It's not good. And I had a sports specialist tell me I needed to stop skating or I would need knee surgery. So my mom was like, nope, that's it. And Oscar Slatters is very commonly co-occurring with Elas Delmos. So tell us about the intersection between your experience of neurodivergence, gender, and chronic health conditions that you've experienced? Yeah, it's it's complicated because they uh, all affect each other, obviously, and um, I'm sure you are both aware of the issues around women being believed about their pain, and I think that can extend to pretty much anything, um, but it's specifically well noted um, about pain. And For me, it was like I've spent my life in and out of doctor's offices with one illness or injury or another, and no one's ever connected the dots, which now post-knowledge, it's easy to connect, but obviously it's harder when you're seeing bits of people and at certain stages, especially I've moved around the country, so I didn't have the most um, continuity of care. But, yeah, I think the, the hardest, the intersection for me is that you just can't ignore one without the other. And even before I knew I was neurodivergent, I knew this was a problem because I would be in and out of physios and having such issues with doing the exercises because my executive function was trash. And I didn't know that at the time. I was just so embarrassed that I used to go into physios and lie and say I did the exercises and they'd be like, oh yeah, you've really improved. And I'm like, you're lying. (laughs) You know, I didn't say that, but I was like, I don't trust you at all. And I've had to learn the very slow and hard way that that was only harming me. But equally, like I've had a lot of physios that have not helped me and sometimes even hurt me because they didn't understand the complexity of being in a body that has hypermobile illostanlos, number one, (laughs) Um, and my sensory issues around pain because I am hypersensitive to pain. And that's caused me some real issues. I uh, had a surgery when I was 18 uh, and in recovery, I, I had it was one of my worst surgeries pain-wise and I've had a lot of surgeries and the doctor surgeon wouldn't give me more pain meds on day five because he said his other patients were fine by then. So I had to go to my GP like a drug addict and luckily she knew I had this issue. So she totally happily gave me decent pain meds. It was just so messed up that I was not taken seriously by this surgeon because I was abnormal in my pain response. And so for me, that's like exactly the perfect description of the intersection of my neurodivergence, neurodivergence, gender and chronic health, like health conditions. Yeah, it just it extends so further on because when you are trying to get help for any illness, it's so hard to find people that have the specialization or the ability to treat you as a whole person knowing those different layers. So for example, 
I have tried seeing a dietitian that just dealt with eating disorders and her lack of knowledge of especially autism for me, it just made it so impossible because she really got it. She never triggered me, which was great from an eating disorder angle. She was like a really great eating disorder therapist, but just there was so much pressure on me to educate her on neurodivergence and how that impacted my eating when I barely understood it, that that didn't last. So then I went and found a dietitian that works with autism and mostly kids because, you know, that's life. But she did have the occasional adult and I didn't find that that was a barrier for me because a lot of my issues are what kids have, (laughs) except I prepare my own food, not the parents, which is a problem. (laughs) Um, But she triggered me so badly for my eating disorder issues. And she was so willing to learn. She even said she could consult with like an eating disorder psychologist and make sure she like is learning and she she knows that there's an overlap and she should be like across it. Anyway, she was so lovely. But I'm like, I am not the person that you need to experiment on though, because it's super triggering for me. And as much as I really want to help you so you can help others, I can't do that to myself. So I stopped seeing her too. And for a year now, I have been desperately searching the World Wide Web for anyone in Australia that, especially like a dietitian specifically, but I, I see a multiple um, allied health professionals um, in my recovery and just general neurodivergence help and stuff. But yeah, I I've been looking so so far and wide for someone who understood both eating disorders and especially autism, but neurodivergence. And and it's just like finding a unicorn. Like they don't exist, but I finally found one <laughs> after harassing poor um, the eating. Uh, it wasn't harassing. I say that. It, I asked very sweetly <laughs> to Eating Disorders Victoria if they knew of anyone, and they gave me the name of someone. I, I hope that there's more out there. And if the, if you are out there, please somehow tell people <laughs> because I couldn't find you on the internet. And I like to think I'm pretty good at searching, but maybe it's me. I don't know. And anyway, I found her, and she's autistic late diagnosed, which is great. I love a neurodiverse health professional because they get me more than anyone. And she, I've only had one session with her and oh my God, I feel like my prayers have been answered. Like in that one session, I was like, this is exactly what I've been whinging about to all my other professionals about why I can't see a dietitian specifically that only knows one of those areas because they are just so, so tightly interlinked that if you don't understand one without the other, you can't treat me. You absolutely can't treat me. And I think that's where our problem is. Like we're starting to acknowledge that there's a huge amount of crossover with neurodivergence and eating disorders, but where are the professionals to help? Uh, That just needs to change like rapidly because you know, there's so much, I'm sure you guys are aware um, as mental health professionals in neurodivergence, but there's so many issues with traditional ways of treating eating disorders. And I feel like I'm almost lucky to be fat, to be honest. And I say fat in a body positive, fat reclaiming way. <laughs> there is so many issues around, um, you know, like group therapy and inpatient stuff that affects like sensory issues and everything. And I'm lucky because of my largeness, I was never put in any of those places because they didn't want to recognize I had a severe eating disorder ever. And I'm so grateful because they are so not made for us. Yeah. I've also had um, 
clients that I've worked with that have had inpatient treatment, some for eating disorder issues, some for other mental health reasons, and have found the inpatient experience difficult um, simply because of things like it's a change in their routine or sensory issues weren't really taken into account, a different environment, group therapy. So yeah, it'd be great if uh, treatment centers and particularly ones that do specialize in eating disorders would take that into account with setting up their inpatient programs that they're having a lot of uh, overlap with people coming in for treatment that are also autistic that they take you know sensory issues and things like that into account with the even the environment um, of inpatient treatment to make things as comfortable as possible so Annie what would you like to see being done differently in the treatment of eating disorders for neurodivergent folk And I guess kind of on that, what do you feel for you has been actually helpful in your recovery journey? Yeah, uh, they're both really, really important questions, I think, in terms of actually wanting outcomes, Um, not just having a good wind, which is so cathartic and needed. But (laughs) I think firstly, we need to really shift away from the weight loss aspect of eating disorders because Eating disorders are a complex mental health issue for a reason. They are so much more than weight and food, and we all know that. So let's start acknowledging that people shouldn't be judged on the severity based on weight because the stats are less than 6% of people with an eating disorder are medically diagnosed as underweight. So why is this even a thing? I literally hear daily in a few of the forums I'm on about women getting turned away who are completely normal weight, and I don't like the term normal, but average weight, because they clearly can't have anorexia severely enough because they're not underweight. What hope do us in larger bodies have of getting support if they're getting turned away? Like, let's just throw weight out the window, please. So, I mean, that's definitely a starting point. And secondly, I think it would be great if allied health professionals and doctors uh, understood the overlap and the factors that influence each other, you know, what parts of my neurodivergence affects my eating disorder and what parts of my eating disorder are loved by my neurodivergence and how can I separate the two and, and like get help with the eating disorder while also learning to accept, appreciate and love my neurodivergent self because that can't be changed. That's who I am. And even though some of that is linked directly to why I've developed an eating disorder, but mostly it's, you know, diet culture and such. It's something that I think, you know, it's that whole we need neurodivergent affirming healthcare, right? In a nutshell. Well, yeah, and I, I really like that point around, I love the way that you worded that, Annie, around what parts of my eating disorder are loved by my neurodivergence. And exactly as you say, it's so crucial to have an understanding about how the two kind of play into each other or intersect. So, you know, when we're thinking about restrictive eating practices and autism, I'm coming here from a lens of, you know, children, right? But often when you've got children who have quite restricted diets, autistic children with very restricted diets, And it's very sensory based. You were mentioning earlier in our episode today, Annie, just more generally about sensory things. And you were articulating that for individuals on the spectrum, a sensory thing isn't just, oh, that's kind of annoying. 
it's very uncomfortable and it's very distressing. So, you know, regular advice for, say, a child who's a picky eater is kind of like, well, just put on the plate what they need to eat and if they don't want to eat it, then you just say, well, you don't have dinner tonight and then tomorrow you'll be hungry and then you can just eat it. Not the case for an individual on the spectrum. They just won't eat. (laughs) because if you're not eating a particular food for a sensory reason, it's almost like you just physically cannot eat that food. When we then think about that restrictive eating practice, it's really easy to see how they can feed into each other. But then also we need to acknowledge the genuine underlying sensory issue while we're still treating what is actually disordered eating. Yeah, and honour those sensory issues as well because, and this is what I was talking about earlier with the whole separation of autism and anorexia in ARFID and and then separately ADHD and binge eating is that from what I understand, um, ARFID is basically like having symptoms of anorexia without wanting to actually lose weight, but then anorexia is having a restrictive diet but it being about weight. And for me, I've got both. <laughs> And, and I'm like, I, I don't really fit either neatly, uh, but that doesn't make them less valid or anything. And I need someone who can, who has the expertise to pick them apart and know what things are actually safe and able to be fixed versus what things do we have to support and find workarounds and empower. And it's very hard to do even knowing myself, let alone any health professionals. Uh, and, and we really need people like that who can take us on that journey because it's absolutely, I personally believe can't be done alone. Like no matter how insightful you are, it's so complicated when you add layers of diet culture, being a woman, the bodily standards we have, fat phobia, weight stigma, like you just, you need to unpack that. And and for me, I spent the two years after being diagnosed with my eating disorder solely focusing on psychology So I I actually have two psychologists because I'm really special uh, and I see them interchangeably um, each week. And one's my kind of neurodivergence trauma psych and the other one is my eating disorder and neurodivergence psych. And they, they work together and she has helped me, like I consider myself recovered now from my traditional eating disorder. I have said F you to diet culture and weight stigma and even though I would love to be in a smaller body, I now accept myself and I, on a daily basis, have to make conscious decisions to love myself and show compassion. So I recently um, did newborn photos with my son and well, a year ago, <laughs> he's one, but I wasn't really going to do them. And the reason I ended up deciding to do them was because I thought to myself, I haven't had professional photos done in seven years since my wedding when I was very anorexic and very fake. Like I had very blonde hair. I was very much living the life of trying to be neurotypical without even knowing it. And to me, I see those photos and I am reminded of a beautiful day, that one of the best of my life, but equally I'm reminded of how much I was struggling. So I really wanted new photos. It wasn't even about my son. I love him, but oh my God. (laughs) I just wanted photos that I could be proud of in my current body, which is healed and which deserves to be seen and loved and yeah, all of the things. (laughs) Um, So yeah, for me, it, it was great because I had a psychologist that understood my neurodivergence and my eating disorder and 
she helped me unpick that to be able to treat the very, the like I say, typical eating disorder stuff around body image and weight stigma and fat phobia. But I got to the end, not the end, but I got to the two-year mark and was like, so I no longer starve myself. I'm killing it at RAVES, which is the like an acronym for one of the ways you can treat eating disorders. And I'm only on the R. I've been on R for two years, <laughs> two and a half now, uh, which is regular eating. So you don't focus on changing your diet in any way other than just eat regularly, which for me is really hard. So making myself eat regularly and putting stuff in place to remind me to eat has been life-changing because I no longer want to binge just because I'm actually getting fed. It's literally got nothing to do with starving myself. I'm just making a really conscious decision to eat because I forget to eat all the time. Um, So that's been mind-blowing. Such a great point about All of those little individual factors that all feed into each other and all interact to contribute to what is disordered eating, right? You know, I love your point around the executive dysfunction inherent in autism and ADHD can mean that it's really hard to remember to eat, right? And then exactly as you say, if you haven't eaten all day, of course you're going to eat, 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 eat until you can't anymore. Then when we combine that with difficulty with interception, you're not reading that kind of, oh, now I'm full, now I'm satiated cue. And then, you know, and you've gone through all of this already today, Annie, but I just, I love the way that you've put it. And then it's sort of that feeling of, okay, now the whole Uh, eating disorder, diet culture, my worth is my weight, I'll be more valuable human being if I'm in a small body, all of that then interplays. It thinks, okay, now I'm going to intentionally starve myself the next day. I love your explanations and the way that you've been able to articulate and tease apart all of those multiple factors inherent in what makes healthy eating or disordered eating in a neurodiverse individual. Yeah, and I think we really need more specific research on this area um, and also ones that take into account uh, that people can have multiple co-occurrences, having multiple neurodivergences and multiple eating disorders at the same time and looking at uh, bringing that neurodiversity affirming paradigm into eating disorder treatment models. Like we need more research around that to give people, uh, you know, more appropriate treatment model specific to this population. Yeah, 100%. Uh, that's exactly kind of what I was getting at uh, a while ago, uh, talking about how I'm not happy that they're siloing the different neurodivergences and the different eating disorders, because it's very common, one, to have multiple neurodivergences and two, to actually cycle through different eating disorders. I've done it. I Most people I know with eating disorders have done it. Like once you've got one, they're all attractive <laughs> for the same reasons you got one in the first place. <laughs> um, so I 100% totally agree with that. Uh, We absolutely need to be like cross-referencing this stuff and seeing how it fits in a bigger picture and also making access to health. Like, so for instance, eating disorders, um, they're very commonly known to have a big team all working together to treat because they're so complex. But most of that is done in the public system, for example. Like when you're in private, it's a lot harder to get that connect. Um, So for me, it's been like, I have excellent providers now. I've worked my butt off to find good people and oh my god I love my team and it's why I'm totally killing it well as well as I can um at life and they struggle and it a lot of pressure falls to me as the neurodivergent person to 
connect them all with what we're all working on. And when you already have an issue with anxiety and, and memory and communication, that's really stressful. <laughs> uh, and I mean, I've raised that with them and I'm, they're trying, one of them's now taking the lead and connecting up a bit more, but which is great. And I love them, but um, I think it's definitely a barrier to this sort of overlap and connected care. Well, I think it really speaks to just the need to change the way that our healthcare system is set up. I totally understand what you're saying. And as someone who works in private practice, I also understand how difficult time-wise it is to actually kind of make those um, cross-health professional connections for your multiple clients and, and for everyone on your caseload. And my dream uh, would be that we actually exist and operate, even people in private practice, in multidisciplinary practices where it makes it so much easier then because the person that you need to connect with is down the hall rather than needing to set up a time when both of you are free and can talk on the phone or, you know, play email tag or whatever. So that's kind of my dream for the future. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And actually, my two psychologists used to work in the same practice when I first started seeing them. And 18 months into it, one of them left and started her own. And it was so much easier when they worked together across the hall. <laughs> um, and they openly told me that. And I totally sympathize with how hard it is. Um, and the other thing that I think is really important to mention is that, you know, this disconnect of care for children and adults, there's so much to unpack there that we can definitely not deal with today. But the, the thing I want to raise is that because there's so much attention on kids, as there should be, you know, yay for the next generation, there's a real gap in helping support adults, especially late diagnosed adults, because we never got any early intervention to deal with any of this. So for me, you know, I, I, I have seen and see by like people like a speech pathologist and a, um, and OTs and dietitians, like I said before, who work just with ADHD, ASD and mostly kids. And the, le the level they don't understand that I think is, I truly think is being missed from the conversation um, because I th I'm seeing so much research turn towards sensory needs, interoception, black and white thinking, rigidness, uh, you know, and the appeals of all that and the vulnerabilities but I'm not seeing a lot on executive function because these kitties that are getting support have parents, autistic or not, who are the ones doing the executive functioning. When I'm the patient without a carer and I'm going to these appointments, anything they want to do with me is on me to do, right? And, and that is a huge problem because I struggle so much with executive function and a lot of the ways to treat these things or the traditional ways that they're treated rely on being good with executive function. And I think that needs way more attention because that's going to really impact how we help neurodivergent people in care settings. Great point. And I think, I guess, the distinction that I might make there is that I think there actually is lots of really fantastic research on executive functioning and research on, you know, how this works. And the problem that many people are experiencing, exactly as you articulated, Annie, is that that's not actually funneling down to practitioners in a way that is practically useful, right? So it's kind of like, okay, yeah, this paper says X, Y, Z, but 
how do I actually implement that with my client? You know, how do I translate that to a functional, practical um, strategy? Yeah. And sometimes as a clinician, if you don't recognize or know, okay, I'm working with someone that does have executive functioning issues going on um, and you're putting like, I guess, some neurotypical expectations on them for doing, you know, therapy homework or, you know, home practice or whatever. When the client comes back and hasn't been able to complete that homework and you kind of go, why? Like you, you kind of ask, okay, what's going on? Like, what did you find difficult about that? Often it's, you know, like, oh, I completely can't remember what we even talked about in the last session um, or I forgot to kind of do it or implement it in day-to-day life because of executive functioning, but neither the client or the clinician has that framework and language to actually um, understand that it's an executive functioning issue. And then, yeah, like the client can kind of be labeled as a, you know, resistant client, like why aren't they doing their homework? They're not motivated. Actually, when they, they are really motivated, but there's those blocks there because they have a disability that's not really being recognized. And there isn't that support for adults. You know, we have to kind of just power through adult life, raw dog in it, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. I'll just clarify on the the research comment I made. Um, there is so much research on executive function. My issue is there's not a lot on the overlap of eating disorders and executive function. And that's my concern because I think that heavily plays into people with neurodivergence and eating disorders. And a lot of us, especially women who are mostly undiagnosed, like 80% of us aren't diagnosed at 18. So we go out into the world as adults without our parents feeding us and doing all the shopping, cooking, cleaning. Like it makes me like tired just thinking about the steps involved in feeding someone. Um, and we're expected to then go into treatment and deal with this stuff, not only all the sensory issues and the trauma and everything that brings up in the treatment, but we're also expected to go home and practice it and do the homework it's just a lot. <laughs> like it's a real barrier. And I'm really lucky because um, I am very open with my providers. I'm really open with my physio when I don't do stuff. And uh, she's, we've slowly built a relationship where I'm not even nervous to do that anymore. And I'm very open with her about how I'm sensitive to her ever judging me or seemingly judging me. Uh, she's great. <laughs> she has anxiety. So she gets me as well. And uh, for like my psychologist, I rarely get homework. Yeah, I think too, it gets complicated with the executive functioning thing and like uh, therapeutic homework when you have multiple uh, things going on, like you're seeing multiple mental health providers, multiple allied health and medical staff because you might have chronic illness um, plus chronic pain, plus eating stuff, plus psychological stuff, plus neurodiversity and just trying to keep track of like all of the homework for each of them. Um, it can be like a full-time job. Like I've often had clients tell me they're exhausted from going to all their appointments and doing all their therapy homework. Yeah, absolutely. I actually, um, before I had my baby had taken two years off work because it was my full-time job to go to all of these appointments and just manage my health. Uh, it's such a big burden, especially when you don't have any carer or parent doing anything with you. Like my husband couldn't take time off work to come to appointments with me. He did occasionally when I needed it, but like it's on me to 
deal with all my own treatment. And and that needs to be uh, understood for people who do help adults um, because it is an extra layer of complication. Um, but I guess uh, just in closing, I just really want to see better like awareness and understanding and tools. I, I don't, I don't blame the medical professional. Like this stuff's so fresh and just being understood. I just think now that we're understanding it, let's put into action some ways to support all of our health professionals, to support all of us, you know, like let's really, let's get people with lived experience talking to the researchers, talking to the policymakers, actually making things that can be used. That's the dream, right? (laughs) Absolutely. Is that so much to ask? Well, apparently. (laughs) Apparently. I I think we're heading there. I just would love it to be faster. Thank you so much, Annie, for joining us on the podcast today. It's been amazing talking with you, your lived experience, and great to see like some of the advocacy work you're doing yourself as well. Thank you so much, Annie. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you both so much for having me. I'm such a fan of your work and have listened to every podcast. Um, so uh, thank you for doing what you're doing. I think more people need to be doing it and I'm especially happy that you two are. So I've, I've really enjoyed our chats and I hope they all continue. Want more neurodivergent content? Head to our page on Patreon. Our Patreon supporters receive exclusive and additional content ranging from resources, additional information on episode content, responses to listener questions, book reviews, and mental health tip sheets. You can find a link to our Patreon in the show notes and on our website, www.ndwomanpod.com. We really appreciate your support on this journey as we aim to make quality psychological and mental health care information accessible to everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Neurodivergent Woman Podcast. If you have a question or would like to contact us, you can do so through our Facebook and Instagram at the name The Neurodivergent Woman Podcast or our website ndwomanpod.com. You can also email us directly at ndwomanpod at gmail.com. Bye for now. This is the end of Season 2 of the Neurodivergent Woman Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Monique and I will continue to post regular content on our Patreon page over the season break. So head over to patreon.com forward slash ndwomanpod to stay connected. You can also continue to reach out to us through our Facebook, Instagram, or email. Stay safe, and we can't wait to share more episodes with you in season three.